Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a plenty of... Americans worshiping government over God. Extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. It is day 124 of the war against Israel. And Israelis received some grim news today that families of 31 Hamas-held hostages were notified that their loved ones are no longer alive. And a new report indicates another 20 captives are feared dead Negotiations for the hostages continue with U.S. and Qatari leaders with some hope that Israel and Hamas would agree on another fighting pause so hostages could be freed along with Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. The IDF also announced that intelligence has uncovered clear ties between Gaza Hamas leader Yana Sinwar and Iran, including millions in cash and records showing Iran had given at least $150 million to Hamas, over the past decades, Israeli war cabinet member Benny Gantz said Israel remains committed to twin duties of freeing the hostages and eradicating Hamas. I turn now to my friends at CBN News and Chris Mitchell, CBN bureau chief of the Middle East, reporting from Jerusalem. Here's an update. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said the IDF notified 31 hostage families that their loved ones are no longer alive. The New York Times also reporting that Israeli intelligence is assessing unconfirmed information that at least another 20 hostages may also have been killed. The report said some of the dead were killed on October 7th, some died of injuries while in captivity, and others were killed by Hamas inside Gaza. Alongside the shocking news comes word of potential progress in hostage negotiations. 
Qatar's Prime Minister said Hamas is positive about the latest proposed deal, which would include a pause in the fighting and release of Palestinian prisoners. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said a deal is achievable, but there's a lot of work to be done. In Paris Wednesday, families of French-Israeli hostages appealed for their release. We don't need people to hope for us. I have hope. We need help to get citizens free from the captivity of Hamas. Oad is a French citizen, and I ask from France to do the, all the effort to release him and everyone. Israeli War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz reaffirmed securing release of the hostages is one of the main goals of the war. The return of the kidnapped is an integral part of the victory and does not replace our duty to remove the threat of Hamas. If we reach an outline, it will be a step on the way to victory. The IDF also announced it's found evidence in tunnels under Khan Yunus linking Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar to Iran. We're publishing some of the intelligence information found by our forces, indicating a direct connection from Iran to Hamas and more so to Yihye Sinwar. The IDF discovered large amounts of cash, documents showing the transfer of funds from Iran to Hamas, and envelopes of cash transferred directly to Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. In all, they seized 20 million shekels and documentation that Iran transferred more than $150 million to Hamas and Sinwar in the last decade. Meanwhile, in a show of support to the Jewish state, newly elected Argentinian President Javier Millet arrived in Israel, prayed at the Western Wall, and announced his plans to move his country's embassy to Jerusalem. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, Jerusalem. By the way, it was very moving to see that uh, president not only at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, but to see him weep there as well. Let me pick up on a story that was mentioned in Chris's report, and that is our U.S. Secretary of State has, in fact, arrived in Israel, and he's seeking to seal a truce deal to bring the war in Gaza to a halt. Will that happen? Happen? Here is a report from Reuters. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to be in Israel on Wednesday to discuss the next steps in a ceasefire plan for Gaza after Hamas gave what it called a positive response to the proposal the evening before. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and indeed essential. Blinken was speaking in Qatar during a lightning tour of the Middle East. U.S., Qatari and Egyptian mediators are preparing a diplomatic push to bridge differences between Israel and Hamas on the proposed truce that includes the release of the remaining hostages held in Gaza. That offers the, the prospect of extended calm, hostages out, more assistance in. Uh, that would clearly be beneficial to everyone, uh, and I think that offers the best path forward. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done to, uh, to achieve it. Hamas replied on Tuesday to the framework drawn up more than a week ago by U.S. and Israeli spy chiefs at a meeting with the Egyptians and Qataris. In a statement later, Hamas said it responded in a positive spirit to ensure, quote, a comprehensive and complete ceasefire, ending the aggression against our people, ensuring relief, shelter and reconstruction, lifting the siege on the Gaza Strip and achieving a prisoner swap. 
The mediators did not disclose details of the response, but Qatar said it gave them hope, while Egyptian security sources told Reuters that Hamas showed flexibility. There's been a response. In Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden said cautiously that the reply showed some movement toward a deal. Sources close to the talks have said the truce would last at least 40 days. During this time, Gaza's militants would free the remaining civilian hostages taken during the deadly cross-border attack into Israel on October the 7th. In the next phases, they would hand over soldiers and dead bodies of hostages in return for releases of Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. The truce would also increase the flow of food and other aid to Gaza's desperate civilians. The Israeli Prime Minister's office said late on Tuesday the details of Hamas's response were being, quote, thoroughly evaluated by the officials involved in the negotiations. Hmm. Well, we always pray for peace, but here's the reality in Israel. It takes two parties to want peace. As long as Hamas, a, ter- a terrorist organization, remember, it is it is acting as though it were a governmental organization. Remember, this is like saying we're having a deal, a ceasefire, a truce with Al-Qaeda. This is a terrorist organization. Will they absolutely come to the table and do what needs to be done to have a ceasefire? Who knows? But Israel, remember, has remained steadfast on two points. Number one, the return of all of the hostages. Number two, the total eradication of Hamas. Israel doesn't want to have to do this again. They want to make sure that every bit of that terrorist organization is swept out of Gaza. How do they ensure that? That's the big question. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's our responsibility, even if we don't serve in the State Department. Back after this. God's work tends to follow a specific circular pattern in every season of life. When we understand his pattern, we gain perspective on his hand in our life. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Find clarity for your unique mission and message. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. You know, when we stop and think about the attributes of God, how often do we set our mind on things above and think about God's loving kindness? Now, this really struck home with me when I was in the Word this morning having my quiet time, and I was reminded, as the psalmist taught me, that we are crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies. And I thought, well, if I know that, whatever the day throws at me, I started out my day understanding that God shows his love toward me through his kindness in crowning me with his loving kindness and tender mercies. So we're going to focus on the kindness of God because I think in a world that's turned upside down where good is called evil, evil is called good, and lawlessness seems to be running amok, taking a deep breath, pulling over to the side of the road for a moment, and ruminating on the kindness of God is very important. Our conversation is going to be led this hour by Nate Pickowitz. He is the the teaching pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. He's the author or editor of more than a dozen books, including Why We're Protestant, The American Puritans, How to Eat Your Bible, and Christ and Creed. Additionally, he has written for publications like Table Talk. I almost said tablecloth. Table Talk. It's a girl thing. You'll forgive me. Nate, the warmest of welcomes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate it. First, I have to ask you about Gilmanton Ironworks. That's a long address to have to put on your checks or on an envelope. There has to be a history with the name of that town. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, oh no, it is. Uh, so Gilmanton Ironworks is a, a tiny, tiny town in New Hampshire. Not even people in New Hampshire know where it is. And uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, it was uh, it was known for having a pretty large ironworks uh, years and years ago, which burnt down eventually, but they kept the name. And uh, there's less than 4,000 people in town, but by God's grace, there's a, a gospel preaching church here. So I'm thankful Amen. for that. Amen. How long have you been there? We planted this church 11 years ago, so 2013. Wow, that's marvelous. The other thing I want to find out, too, is that you say in the book that you were raised in a Christian home, but you didn't come to faith in Christ until your 20s. I'd love to hear that story. How did that happen? Yeah, so we were. We were going to a church um, when I was a kid, and, you know, I always struggle with my testimony because, you know, I as a child, you know, you grow up in the church, you hear the gospel, uh, you know, you, you tend to be acquainted with things of faith. Um, and uh, But when I went off to college, my parents ended up splitting up and getting divorced. Went off to college, and then I just lived a life for myself, and uh, but didn't really understand the gospel completely and really trust in Christ until I was in my early 20s. So it's hard because, you know, you have a language of uh, Bible and Christ and doctrine, but you don't really uh, appropriate that. You mm-hmm. don't believe it for yourself. So, yeah, I came to faith probably when I was about 23 years old, uh, by God's grace, and uh, he's kept me ever since. How did that happen? Was it a friend? Did you decide to—were you attending a church at the time? Was it something you read? Yeah, so my, my now wife, her name is Jessica, so we were attending church with my dad, actually, my wife was raised Roman Catholic, and then I obviously was going to church as a kid. But, you know, neither one of us uh, were living for the Lord at all. Um, and so we were going to a church. Both of us were hearing and learning the gospel. For my wife, it was a come-to-Jesus moment. I mean, it was very radical that she—it's like all the dots connected for her mm-hmm. in a short amount of time. But for me, it was like I was remembering things I learned as a kid, and I'm thinking, oh, I remember that. You know, oh, that's what that means, you know? And so— the Lord actually, and not I'm not being coy, but in His kindness, really uh, <laughs> knit us together at the same time. I mean, both of us came together at the same time, grew together, and really the day we got married was the first step of obedience for both of us. And so uh, I really thank the Lord for, for yoking us together at a very early time in our relationship. And, and like I said, He's kept us strong ever since. Wow. What's interesting, too, is not only having been raised in a Christian home, but not coming to faith until you were 23, You also started out in the financial world and didn't get into ministry until 2009. Tell me about that. So I uh, went to college for music and communication, which means when you're out, you can write songs about being unemployed. (laughs) So that was what I got my my degree in and uh, was trying to find a way to make a living. Uh, My wife and I got married. And uh, eventually I just ended up in sales and ended up working for a pretty large financial company. I was with that company during the 2008 uh, market crash and downturn, and so that Mm. was when I was doing that. Mm. I had no intention, no aspiration in ministry whatsoever, and I actually remember one point when I was starting to learn the Bible and really starting to fall in love with the church, and my affections began to change. I remember having sort of a conversation with the Lord and and sort of surrendering my life and saying, I'll do whatever you want, but just don't make me a pastor and don't put me back in Gilmanton because that's where I was born and raised. And lo and behold, a couple years later, we planted a church in Gilmanton, Ironworks, New Hampshire. So God has a wonderful sense of humor, but uh, I'm thankful for that. Wow. But go go back to that part about ministry, because I'm sure that being in the financial world, while there was at least some presumption of a steady paycheck, 
People don't understand that when you decide to literally step out and to step into ministry, um, the financial future is markedly different. So did you two have long conversations about, I mean, you didn't know at the time you were going to plant a church. This was step one in your pilgrim's progress, stepping into ministry. That was a little risky. I mean, how do you seek the Lord's face in the midst of that? Well, yeah, absolutely. You're right on the money. I mean, uh, our friends and family thought we were crazy. Um, my <laughs> wife actually was a teacher, and uh, we had made the decision for her to stay home. So we had lost her income, and we're surviving on my income only, which was uh, it was commission-based only. Mm. So, um, you know, my business began to dry up. At the same time, my affections for the church, my I had started taking classes online and eventually got a, a master's degree in you know, I was working with our church leadership. I mean, they they saw something in me. Um, you know, they were able to affirm and, and call me, and I was ordained um, at, at our church. And so eventually we just stepped out, uh, not really knowing. We had some financial backing, but, you know, we really just believed that the Lord was moving in us uh, as a family, and we joined a couple other families. We planted the church with four families. Wow. But, you know, we stepped out in faith and yeah. just trusted that He was going to do it. And that's what it is, underscore the stepping out in faith. We are talking with Nate Pickowitz, who's the author of The Kindness of God, and we're going to take up that topic in depth when we return. But I have to tell you, the book itself is not big, but it is rich. There is rich theology in this book. I so appreciated reading it and being reminded again of exactly what the kindness of God says about God and what it says about us. More after this. How nice in a world gone bad very quickly that we're going to take time out of our busy lives to talk about the kindness of God. That's a very important topic, by the way. And so our guest, Nate Pickowitz, is the author of the book, The Kindness of God, Beholding God's Goodness in a Cruel World. He is the teaching pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. Sounds like something out of our town, doesn't it? So I want to dig into something you say early on in the book, and it's an idea that you reiterate throughout the book, either statedly or impliedly, and that there is a distinction between the goodness of God, which you say should not be confused with his kindness. Goodness harkens back to a characteristic. Kindness is an expression. Explain that to us. Yeah, no, it's a, a very keen distinction. You know, the, the goodness of God is his his ultimate and um, his moral purity, his inherent goodness and rightness, everything that's good and worthy of approval. I know I'm using good in the same definition here, but it's it's his standard of what is good, right, and true. So it it's, comes from uh, in his being, whereas the kindness of God is his goodness expressed to uh, those outside of himself. So whether it's kindness expressed to believers, which are his people, or even kindness expressed to the world in the form of common grace and things like that. So uh, it's what we receive from God, his very heart to us, uh, expressed through acts and deeds and words of kindness. Mm. Uh, so it's out of, out of God's goodness that we receive his kindness. This conversation is as much about his characteristics as it is anything else, and this is always a fruitful conversation. So you talk about the doctrine known as divine simplicity, which means that God is not the sum of all of his parts. He is all of those things. So if we're going to talk about the kindness of God, 
Are we going to talk about his goodness, by the way, because the kindness is the expression, he's all good. That's an important thing for us to remember, is it not? Yeah, it is. And I'm glad you brought up the simplicity because, I, you know, when you write a book about a specific attribute or a perfection of God, as some call them, you know, you don't want to make the give or give the impression that we're dicing him up or somehow chopping him up or that he is parts or passions. You know, we know that all that is in God is purely God. So uh, I liken it to kind of looking at uh, light through a diamond. You know, the more that you turn the diamond, you see different uh, different rays of light and different colors, even though you're looking at the same diamond. So we want to be careful not to parse them out too much, but we do uh, specifically see his kindness displayed throughout the scriptures. So yeah. it just uh, it seemed good to study that. Nate, I really liked your use of the idea of a diamond viewing the different facets, and that's exactly what it is with God, too. Rather than seeing him as made up of these many parts, he's all of these things. And you then pick up on the fact that it's almost a syllogism in some respects, that God is good, we are sinful, and because we are sinful, we are undeserving of God's goodness. So this ties back to the point you just made. So if he is all good and we are undeserving, what does that say about his kindness toward us? Oh, it means it's abundant. I mean, it's all of his grace. You know, and without his kindness, we would have nothing. And I think this ties into the application, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, you know, we take his kindness for granted so often. And I, I think we're mistaken if we if we misunderstand or downplay the absolute necessity of his kindness to us. Without it, we have nothing. Yeah, 100%. So let me linger on this point, because either... Somebody's thinking it or somebody said it out loud, and that's good because it means we've got you engaged and you're thinking critically and biblically. So if God is good, comma, then why fill in the blank? And this goes to the question of suffering. Now, I've decided on my reading list this year, one of the books that I'm going through is Lewis's The Problem of Pain. And it's so deep because it really juxtaposes the concept of pain as um, punishment, but instead he really redefines this as refinement, and it is the manifestation of a loving God. So this goes to the core of what Mm -hmm. you're talking about in your book, that pain and suffering are not antithetical to the goodness of God. If we can get that right, then this whole idea of suffering, which keeps so many people from the cross or makes them walk away from the cross, would radically change our perspective on who God is. So let's talk about this idea that how can God be good and how is he manifesting kindness is if he is, as you point out, multiple stories in the book, including Susan, that how is he a good God if a mother dies of brain cancer, if you lose your job, if a marriage dissolves, if there is catastrophic events in the world? Square that up, if you will, Christian, with the idea that God is good. How do we respond? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think we have to first understand that the world is the way it is. All of these things happen because of sin and because of the fall. I think what happens is when when people try to put God on trial, they completely miss the fact that that this world is drowning in sin and drowning in wickedness, and all of us are, as the Scripture is saying, groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth, you know, suffering under this curse. And, you know, little children don't get sick and die, you know, because they've, you know, done something specific. I mean, I think about the man born blind in John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus, what did this man do, or what did his parents do that he'd be born blind? And what did Jesus say? He said, it's not this man. He says, this was this happened so that the works of God could be displayed in him. So it's a matter of perspective that God 
will use all things, good and bad, to accomplish his purposes. And he will work through suffering and pain and sin and wickedness. He works through all of those things and turns them for good in some way, um, even if we don't perceive them ourselves in that way. It doesn't impact the character of God. He's sovereign, and he is good. You know, he reserves the right to do with his creation whatever he wants to do. But he does manifest his goodness, and there's lots of ways we can see his kindness, even in the midst of suffering. Exactly. You break the book down beautifully. You talk about God's kindness in salvation, in repentance and faith, in sanctification, in relationships, in blessing, in suffering, reflected in the believer, and God's kindness to the nations, which I thought was great. When we come back, because I obviously can't do all of these chapters and all of the rich things you write about, let me go and continue a bit more on the idea with suffering, because for many people, some of the other chapters might be a little more self-evident, but this suffering one becomes the stumbling block. Back after this. The Bible says the Word of God illuminates our walk through life. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Without it, we stumble and fall. In the Market with Janet Partial is designed to help you look at the headlines of the day through the lens of Scripture. When you become a partial partner, you help to make this broadcast possible. And as a partial partner, you'll receive exclusive benefits. So why not become a partial partner today? Call 877-JANET-58 or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So we're talking about the kindness of God and our guest, Nate Pickowitz, who's the author of the book and also teaching pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire, points out very early on in the book, as we understand who God is, that the goodness of God, he says, should not be confused with his kindness, which is a more restricted concept. So he points out that to help to understand this distinction, we have to note that God's goodness is his intrinsic character all good. Out of all the things God is, he's not part good. He's all good because all of his attributes make up his entirety, while his kindness is the outward expression of it toward his people, which is why then Nick goes on and talks about how that kindness is manifest in a myriad of ways, including salvation, repentance and faith, sanctification in our relationships, the list goes on. But he also talks about suffering, which I think is the sticky wicket for so many people, that they cannot somehow square the characteristic of God's goodness with the fact that we live in a sin-sick, fallen world and that suffering is a part of it. If God is good, why doesn't he step in? Christopher Hitchens, was this was his sticking point all the time, that if God was good, why did that five-year-old child die of leukemia? And it's easy for us when we're contending in the faith, as we're directed in the book of Jude, to get stuck in that, which is a straw man argument, by the way. That's not the right question whatsoever. It's a failure to recognize that when we walked out of Eden and walked in the wrong direction, that sin and sickness came into the world, and we will, until the day we go into his presence, be battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we have to contend with the idea of suffering. And Nate, this is one of those big topics, I think, that the saints would just like to take a detour around. I mean, who in the world raises their hand when you're preaching from the pulpit in Gilmanton and says, who wants to join in the fellowship of Christ's suffering? How many hands would go up? Oh, yeah. Very, very few, if any. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're averse to it because we don't want to feel the pain. And, um, you know, it's interesting because this chapter, um, I had actually preached this as a sermon before I wrote it into a chapter mm. because I knew that our folks needed it, you know, and I gave 12 specific reasons why and how we can see God's kindness and suffering, um, because I, I feel that very much so. And I, you know, 
I go through it as well. I mean, there are things I experience that I don't want to go through these things. But the, the Word of God has so much to say to encourage the believer and to draw our eyes to him that if we can learn how to see God's hand even in our suffering. And when James says, rejoice uh, or count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, which includes suffering, by the way, mm-hmm. and he says, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. So that's just one, that's just one little tiny part of it that if we can just see our trials and our suffering as tools that God is using to do something in us, then it changes our perspective altogether. And then we find we can actually still worship him in the midst of suffering and trial. So yeah. um, that's a heartbeat of mine. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad. Then, So thank you for allowing me to linger here for a bit, because I want people to read the book and read it in an entirety. But it's this one on suffering, because there are people listening to us now all across the country who are either about to enter the refiner's fire, join us today from the refiner's fire, who have just walked out. So the book reminds us that not if, but when those fiery trials come. So we have a written guarantee that there's going to be tough stuff out there that we deal with. But I I underlined every one of the points that you made in the book because they were rich in recognizing the role that suffering plays and how it is still yet reflective of his goodness and how he manifests his kindness toward us. But the first thing you talk about is the fact that suffering proves that we belong to God. And you segue beautifully to the story in Job, which I, I think a lot of people have read. They've sat under someone's tutelage on this book. And yet, do we really and truly understand this? I mean, just start with the initial premise. A, how does Satan get access to God? Not once, but twice. And B, because he's God, he knows that Job is going to remain faithful. But was it a sort of Machiavellian move on God's part to say to Satan, go ahead, go ahead, you can try him. Take away all his earthly goods. He's still going to remain faithful. Now, I can hear the antagonist, the atheist, and the skeptic saying, well, how is that the goodness of God when he unleashes Satan on a man who's been faithful to him? How do we respond? Yeah, no, that's a challenge for sure. But I think, again, we have to look at the the bigger picture. You know, we're only given at most 100 years on this planet. And, you know, if the, Job even says, you know, how can I be angry if God, I'm paraphrasing here, but that God mm-hmm. takes away what I have that's good when everything I have has been received from him. That's right. So, you know, he right, he understands it rightly. And, you know, Job's problem throughout the entire book, you know, 30-something chapters of <laughs> crying and complaining, you know, his problem is that he just doesn't understand the reasoning, but he doesn't ever question the goodness and character of God. He never wants sins against the Lord in his mouth. You know, he knows who God is. And I think that believers, um, we do have a, an understanding that God still is good. We just don't understand. And we long to just know, God, if you would just tell me why I'm going through this, I'd be okay. But he doesn't always tell us. Exactly. Uh, he doesn't show us. We might never know till the end. But I think perspective is key in remembering to whom we're speaking when we complain about our our circumstances, and Job understood that, and Mm -hmm. he eventually learned it pretty good at the end, too. He (laughs) recognized uh, that God is sovereign over all things. Mm -hmm. One of the things you say also is that suffering makes us spiritually indestructible, and I thought that was good, because when one is suffering, one tends to feel that they're at their weakest. Feeling indestructible is antithetical to most people in their hour of suffering. But you explain why that's true. Tell my friends. Yeah, well, you think about even the Apostle Paul, you know, when he talks about when I'm weak, he says, therefore, I'm strong. Well, how do we know that we're strong? How do we know that our tri- uh, that the suffering is producing faith in us? Uh, it's because over and over again, when you get beaten down by trials, 
You know, the first time something terrible happens to you, you know, it sends you into a tizzy, you're in shock. But I know saints who have been tried and tested for decades, and there's a certain point where they start to say to themselves, no matter what happens in my life, I know that God will be faithful. He's been faithful before, he'll be faithful again, and they're patient. And then at a certain point, Satan can't rattle them anymore because they've seen God's faithfulness. And so there is a point in which you become spiritually strong. And I would even say, I use the word indestructible, um, because again, our trials are testing and proving our faith over and over again. Some of the strongest believers I know are those who've experienced a plethora of trials and come out the other side praising God. So mm-hmm. be encouraged, listener, if, if you're going through trials, look to the Lord. He will use this for your good and his glory. Be encouraged. So you said something, and I want to pick up on it, and that's the idea of God Please. testing us. This is all part of the suffering. So again, the overarching attribute we're talking about here is God's goodness, out of which flows his kindness. So would a good God express his kindness toward us by testing us? In fact, again, remember we're talking to a a sensate culture, post-truth culture, a me-centric culture. So the idea of suffering is antithetical. Anything at any cost to avoid suffering. All I have to do is stand in the checkout line of the grocery store and I got magazine after magazine telling me how to avoid suffering in modern parlance. Right. So how do I square God's testing me with his goodness? Yeah, I think a culture that, that doesn't want to have to deal with the, the reality of pain is they're just they're turned off to reality. It's just not the way things really are. But God isn't, you know, like you give, you know, the idea of the Machiavellian sort of a, you know, a pain loving or, you know, a God with a magnifying glass roasting an anthill, mm-hmm. that, that kind of right. idea. That is not the kind of testing that God is doing. Rather, it's the kind of testing that you do uh, when you're examining the strength of a metal. When you're putting a piece of metal into the fire and you're purging out the impurities for what purpose? Well, number one, to make sure that what's actually in there is true, uh, and also to make sure that that's actually stronger. Uh, the the perseverance of the saints through trial actually makes us stronger. So do, are we thankful that God makes us stronger believers in terms of faith and endurance, or would we rather be anesthetized from pain and suffering and be weak? So, yes, God uses the trials to make us spiritually strong, to trust him, to look to him, because he wants us to be tested and found pure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those are all good things. We just don't like it. Nobody wants to get roasted for 5,000 degrees in a furnace, but that's what has to happen to prove the metal of our faith, and I praise the Lord for it. Does this, what you just said, does that help offer some clarity to Romans 8.28, which is often not only misunderstood, but misapplied? I think so, because, again, to your point about it being misapplied, this isn't sort of this altruistic, God's just going to work it all out. No, God causes all things, that's good and bad things, to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. I think about Joseph. When he's sold into slavery, ripped away from his family, imprisoned unjustly, all these terrible things. And what does he say at the end? What all those people meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, how can you say that, Joseph? Well, because he understands that God is doing this. He's causing all this to work together, ultimately, because it saves his family. It saves Israel. So there's a grander purpose. I think when we when we focus on our personal trials and our discomfort, we're missing the grander picture. We're missing the kingdom of God. 
Um, so we have to have a right perspective and remember and rehearse that God does. He will cause all things to work together for good if you love him and if you're called according to his purpose. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I have heard so many teachers that I admire and respect say over the last few years that we really are required to have a deeper and richer idea of who God is, that so often we just skate on the surface and we really don't stop and consider the profundity of the nature of God, including his goodness and its relationship to being tried and tested. The book, The Kindness of God, will offer a great deal of clarity on that. There are wonderful chapters in here, so I'm going to pick another one that manifests his kindness toward us. Like I said, what a wonderful verse to wake up this morning and to read a love letter written to me through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that said, I was crowned, as were you, this morning with his loving kindness and tender mercy. Who does that but a good God? Back after this. We're visiting with Nate Pickowitz, who is the teaching pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton, Ironworks, in New Hampshire. He's a prolific writer, by the way. He's the author and editor of more than a dozen books, and he's had publications also in uh, publications like Table Talk magazine. But he joins us today as the author of The Kindness of God, Beholding God's Goodness in a Cruel World. And the way in which Nate writes the book is he goes through several ways in which God's kindness is revealed. We were just talking about suffering, which I think is a big one. The other one is you and me. Did you wake up this morning and say, oh, there's way too much kindness in the world? Not. We've never seen it so bad out there. In fact, I had a conversation, Nate, recently with a Christian professor of behavioral sciences talking about the power of hurtful words. So if anything, we are seeing a wanton abyss when it comes to the idea of kindness. And yet you write that we can show God-like kindness in the way in which we interact with others. If it were so easy, it'd be flowing in the streets. Clearly it's not. We struggle in this area. And I'm talking about believers as well as those who don't yet know him as the Lord. So talk to me about this portrait of kindness. A, why it is a mandate for us to do this. One of the parts of my job description says ambassador for Christ. So there's a presupposition there that if I'm going to reflect him, I should be an overflower of kindness like he is to us. Absolutely. And if you look at Ephesians 4.32, the commands from Paul, it's in a whole list of commands, but the one at the very end of that chapter is be kind to one another. And then he says, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the rooting of our kindness, we don't just be kind for kindness sake, because that's just rooted in, well, I feel like being kind, or somehow I owe you kindness because you're kind to me. But we actually are called to be kind to people even when they're not kind to us. And I would even add, especially when they're not kind to us. Um, But the Bible says that it's rooted in God's kindness to us in Christ. We've received God's kindness and salvation and every other blessing he's given to us. So for us to respond not in kind, uh, we're wicked servants at that point. And and Mm. we don't demonstrate at all that God has done anything in us. So we have a mandate from on high, I believe, and I think the scriptures are very clear. The mandate comes from God that if he is kind to us, then we must be kind to other people as well. 
Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Talk to me about, and just in deference to time, because there's so many things I'd love to delve into in all of these various chapters, but God's kindness to the nations. I thought that this was particularly interesting. Does God, and, and some might say, well, wait a minute, how does God show kindness toward a nation? And you talk about something known as common grace. Would you start by explaining that first and then how that gets poured out over nations? Yeah, so common grace is really just anything that God does that's good or kind to people who don't otherwise have a relationship with him. So the fact that there is, you know, a rainstorm that goes across a whole village and everybody's garden gets water. So people who hate God or people who love God doesn't make a difference. Mm. He pours out that blessing, that grace onto people indiscriminately. So maybe you could say it would be indiscriminate kindness. And the reason that God does this is because without common grace, the world would quite literally tear itself apart. So it's a mercy of God um, that he gives common grace to all people. It's what keeps the earth going so that the gospel can uh, remain. Uh, So that's essentially, in my understanding at least, of common grace as as we see it in the scriptures. Yes, I love that. There's a second part of your question there. No, well, well, let me if, let me ask it this way, if I can. In this idea of common grace, which I love, and your picture of the garden—that's a memorable way to remember what common grace is. But you also write that common grace is can can restrict evil. Explain that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, again, without God's kindness, without His common grace given to us, we would tear each other apart. So I mean, even uh, even the restraint of evil, even giving good leaders. You know, we you know we've been a nation that has historically had uh, just and fair leaders. We've kept ourselves going. Now, there are certainly exceptions to that, but um, you know, the fact that God gives a good government or good leaders to a nation, it, it keeps things going. It keeps the market flowing. It keeps uh, peace. It keeps law and order. Again, those are not salvific things. No one's going to become a Christian because they live in a good country, uh, but it will uh, hold back the tidal wave of wickedness long enough for people to survive and thrive, but also for the gospel to go forth. I mean, mm-hmm. the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, yes. is really a large part that was played in getting the gospel out. That's a common grace of God, absolutely. Yes, yes. A good student of history will help you see that with clarity, I think. You also talk about the fact that common grace can uh, is germane to the conviction of sin that leads to salvation. Now, that to some people at first blush, that might look like an oxymoron. How can you have common grace and conviction of sin in the same sentence? So flush that out. Yeah, so Romans 2.4 says that it's actually the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Mm. Um, so, you know, people are angry at God all day long, every day, everywhere. Um, but then when you see God's goodness, it does something. You know, the Puritans used to have a saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, God pours out his kindness And there are times when a person is just overwhelmed with the goodness of God, and it melts them. They recognize how wretched they are, how they don't deserve God's goodness, and they repent of their sins. And if they hear the gospel, certainly they trust in Christ and they believe. So his goodness can have a a transformative effect, especially when a person comes face-to-face with their own sinful condition. So it has lots of impact, certainly that. I think about Luke 6.35 He says, love your enemies, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So Mm. God demonstrates this over and over again. Well, and you just made me think of the verse that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us and gave his life for us. So if that's not the manifestation of the kindness of God that flows from his goodness, I don't know what is. Nate, it's an excellent book. Let me repeat myself, and I'm not being redundant for redundancy's sake. I really mean it. Uh, There's rich theology in this book, and it's not... It isn't an academician's book. It's meant for you and me, but it's such grounded theology. Maybe I'm bragging on it because I don't think Moody would publish anything but a book with rich theology, and this is a Moody published book. So you can learn how to get it by going to my website, in the market with JanetParshall.org. That's the front page. You'll see a box after this descriptor of my conversation with Nate. There's a box that says Program Details and Audio. Click that on. It'll take you to the information page. And then you can learn more about Nick. I have a link to his Facebook page. And on the right-hand side, there's the book, The Kindness of God, Beholding God's Goodness in a Cruel World. So click it on, and it'll walk you right to where you can go to get a copy of the book. Nate, I thank you again for a great conversation. Let me tell you, friends, if you've enjoyed what you heard, I just barely scratched the surface. There's so much more in this wonderful book that reminds us that God is good as well as great. Check it out. It's called The Kindness of God. Thanks for being with us, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.